This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Friendly warning, at first it'll seem like this episode is a bit scattered. We're talking about criminal policy, archbishops, marketplaces, but I promise it'll come back together by the end, so just hang with me here. Today's episode, episode 93, is entitled Shifting Winds. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Murdrum. This was the term used for a law passed by King William I in the later years of the 1060s, in the background of what morphed into the events such as the Herring of the North, the invasion of the Godwinson Boys, the sack of Peterborough, and the siege of Ely. We cannot forget that while William was putting out fires from one coast to the other, he was also trying to be, oh, what's that called again? Um, Oh, right, king. As Mark Morris writes in the Norman Conquest, quote, Englishmen, given half the chance, would surreptitiously slaughter the Normans the moment their backs were turned. End quote. Despite William's seemingly indomitable grip on the kingdom after 1066, rebellion after rebellion after rebellion shows us clearly that it was no foregone conclusion that William would remain king from year to year. Edric the Wild, the Godwinsons, Count Eustache, the Welsh, Edgar Etheling and his Scottish royal support, Hereward the Wake. I mean, there are no shortages of enemies for William to overcome. Also keep in mind that each one of these men garnered some level of mass popularity, otherwise they would, they would never have risen to the heights needed to make it into the records, let alone numerous records. Put simply, the Normans were in no way, shape, or form safe in England. Hence the law mentioned earlier, murderum. Morris writes, quote, By this law, if a Norman was found murdered, the onus was placed on the lord of the murderer to produce him within five days or face a ruinous fine. If the culprit remained at large despite his lord's financial ruin, the penalty was simply transferred to the local community as a whole and levied until such time as the murderer was produced. Clearly, the aim was to deter both lords and communities from granting protection and anonymity to such killers, end quote. By extension, it's implied that William was well aware of the sort of support English rebels and assassins were receiving among his cowed subjects. So again, in the background of all of those rebellions and skirmishes and harryings of the late 1060s, it seems there were plenty of Englishmen who still took it upon themselves to, as Morris states, quote, unquote, vent their anger against their Norman occupiers by picking them off individually whenever the opportunity presented itself. Now, fast forward back to where our narrative left off, mid to late 1070. Ely was now firmly under William's control, and the rebel Hereward had disappeared forever. It seems, yet again, that William has finally brought civility to the kingdom by ousting the ferocious Hereward. He now turns to an issue he's been meaning to get to for quite a while, the Archbishop of Canterbury. No, really, 
Whoever held the Archbishopric of Canterbury held the entirety of the church in England within his grasp. Only one other archbishop came close to the power of Canterbury's, and that was the Archbishop of York. And, well, we know what state York was in at the moment. The man in charge in Canterbury was a powerhouse of a man named Stigand. Sound familiar? It should as he's played various roles in our narrative already, and not always for the, um, the best of reasons. Stigand served King Edward since the 1040s, having served as head of the sees of Elmham and uh, then Winchester before being appointed by the king to Archbishop of Canterbury, just after the king's row with Godwin, in 1052. When Stigand took over in Canterbury, the king had a clear agenda that, despite the death of Earl Godwin of Wessex a year earlier, he needed the ecclesiastic support of Canterbury, and by extension the Pope's support, as the sons of Godwin were taking the reins. The problem there was that Stiggins' appointment coincided with Pope Leo IX's reform movement. Remember, this was the beginning of William and Matilda's consanguinity issues with the Pope, too. Well, Archbishop Stiggin took over Canterbury and kept his control of Winchester, resulting in charges of another point of reform by Leo's, that of simony. Now, simony, or simony, is the practice of church leaders holding more than one position at one time. I know we've kind of been over this, but it goes deeper than mere regulations. Way deeper, actually. See, with the issues being Rome and between Rome and Constantinople for superiority, don't forget the Great Schism of 1054 was right over the horizon at this point in 1052. The Pope was, in previous decades, regardless who the Pope was, mind you, the Pope was getting very, very concerned about the consolidations of power by some of the priests around Christendom. And England was well known for its practice of simony or simony. Stigand, having both Canterbury and Winchester under his control, was committing the crime of consolidating his wealth and his power, and the Pope shall have no rival. In response to such accusations, King Edward doubled down, and Stigand refused to do what every single archbishop across Christendom was required to do when, when assuming an archbishopric. Stigand refused to make the pilgrimage to Rome to receive his pallium directly from the Pope. Letter after letter was sent between Rome and Canterbury seeking, well, some solution to the issue at hand. Neither would budge, so Stigand would suffer official excommunication by Popes Leo IX, Nicholas II, and Alexander II. And so... That's kind of the way it stayed. Now fast forward over 10 years to the bedside of King Edward. January, 1066. Edward lay dying, his wife, Godwinson's sister, sitting near him, Earl Harold Godwinson standing beside his sister, and across the room ready to read last rites, Archbishop Stigand. An excommunicated Archbishop Stigand, mind you. Now, Archbishop Stigand was also the man crowning King Harold II Godwinson hours later. An excommunicated Archbishop Stigand, mind you. 
After the death of Harold Godwinson months later, Archbishop Stigand holed himself up in London and threw his support behind young Edgar Etheling, an excommunicated Archbishop Stigand, mind you. But Stigand was an opportunist, and Stigand knew a winning horse when he saw one, and it wasn't the Etheling. He rode out to throw his support behind William in person, and William being William, he was a continental man. Despite his row with the Pope about consanguinity, which he navigated out of with Pope Nicholas II years earlier, he didn't take too kindly to charges of simony, despite Norman priests also being known for the practice. He kept Stigand close by in Canterbury, knowing the archbishop has zero leverage to use in negotiations of power and wealth. William even went so far as to choose Archbishop Eldred of York to crown him, though Stigand was forced to stand by and watch. In 1067, with the crown firmly atop his head, William's victory tour of Normandy included, as we know, many English dignitaries, of which Stigand was one of them. And by the time Matilda joined her husband in England to be crowned queen herself, Archbishop Stigand was once again humiliatingly cast to the side while Archbishop Eldred handled the ceremony. However, Stigand remained among the major leaders present in William's court between the years 1067 and 1069. Nothing is settled history, but we can confidently assume that Archbishop Stigand might have had his hands in a lot of correspondence among English rebels. Again, I don't presume to know for sure, but knowing his flip-flopping history, it seems like it could be true. After the harrying of the North... After the departure of the Danes, after the rebellions led by Edric the Wild in the east, the Godwinsons in the southwest, and Hereward in the west were settled, William had no need of an English archbishop in Canterbury. With the English firmly under his thumb, he could begin to shape the kingdom to his own liking, and this started with reigning in the Anglo-Saxon church. I told you we would return to this ceremony from time to time, so... On April 11, 1070, at the Easter Synod in Winchester, William was able to hold court. In, light, in the light of everything that had occurred over the previous four years, there was much to discuss. Mark this Easter court as possibly the first time William was able to just stop and breathe since he left Norman Shores in 1066. He was not only divvying out tracts of land to his most loyal, but he was also hosting papal legates. One in particular, Bishop Ermenfroy of Sion, was tasked by William to remove Stigand from the archbishopric and escort him to prison. Yeah. Stigand's brother, Bishop Ethelmere of Elmham, also suffered the same fate that same Easter. It's worth noting that Stigand and Ethelmere weren't the only victims of William's Normanization of England's churches. Bishop Ethelric of Selsey, Bishop Ethelwine of Durham, and Bishop Leofwina of Lichfield were also kicked out of the clergy as well. So like I said, we don't exactly know whether Stigand was behind any of the rebellions for sure, but there's an interesting piece of evidence that might lead us to draw such a conclusion. See, before April of 1070, Stigand had taken his entire fortune and hidden it away in Ely Abbey. Why Ely Abbey? 
Well, more than that, why Ely Abbey during the time that Hereward and the Danes occupied it? That's the question. Well, something tells me Stigan knew something the records don't tell us. Either way, when William later took Ely, he also took Stigan's vast wealth with him, thus depriving the former archbishop of any hope for a comfy life he ever managed to get out of, if he ever managed to get out of jail. In fact, it was this wealth that gained him a bit of infamy, as it's said that King Edward's and Earl Harold Godwinson's land holdings were greater than Stiggins. So much for altruistic service to God and his fellow man. You can't have an archbishop be the third richest person and still hold your, you know, your, your godly duties as sacred. Now, as for Stigand, he would die in jail just two years later, in February of 1072. He was a victim of his own greed for both wealth and power, but more than that, he was a victim of watching the collapse of his English kingdom from one of the highest perches on the new political tree. So, who would take Archbishop Stigand's place in Canterbury? Well, it wouldn't take long to find Stigand's replacement. Lanfranc was his name, and he was, in August of 1070, serving as prior of the Abbey of Beck. History remembers him as Lanfranc of Beck, though history also remembers him because of his service to Kings William I and II as Archbishop of Canterbury. So Stigand was stripped of his archbishopric in April, and by August 29th, Lanfranc had been consecrated. And Lanfranc, being a reformer at heart, immediately began dismantling the English ecclesiastic system, as it were, beginning with one of his former students at Beck, who was currently beginning his own career as the new Archbishop of York. Thomas of Bayeux was this man's name, and he threw down the gauntlet right away, saying that the Archbishopric of York is the dominant see for Northumbria and the Midlands. Well, this would not be a conflict easily and quickly resolved, that's for sure. But that said, Lanfranc issued a formal statement disputing such absurd claims, to which Thomas of Bayeux replied with, Nuh-uh, 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 citing quite accurately the use of Archbishop Eldred of York before him as the English archbishop who crowned both William and Matilda. Therefore, York took precedence over Canterbury. Well, Lanfranc didn't have time for such nonsense, so he got on with it and headed to Rome to seek his pallium from the Pope, something all, again, archbishops had to do, and something Stigand refused to do. This started to heal the fractures between Rome and England. That said, it was Archbishop Lanfranc of Canterbury who, while making amends for his predecessor's gaffes, was the man who worked with King William I to establish a clear delineation between the English church and Rome. Though subservient, England was still independent to a degree, at least in their eyes. And it can be said that it was Lanfranc there in 1072 or so when the official cleavage between the Catholic Church and what would become, many centuries later, the Church of England, truly began to take shape. So, with the church somewhat settled, having put two Norman-trained monks at the head of the two most powerful sees in his new kingdom, King William was satisfied. And here is the point in the episode I'd like to bring together both Lanfranc and the policy of Merdrum. 
Morris writes, quote, Writing to Pope Alexander II in the early part of 1073, Lanfranc described the situation in England as unbearably awful, end quote. Morris then quotes that very letter. Lanfranc writes, quote, I am continually hearing, seeing, and experiencing so much unrest among different people, such distress and injuries, such hardness of heart, greed, and dishonesty, such a decline in the Holy Church that I am weary of my life and grieve exceedingly to have lived in times like these. End quote. The thing that sets Lanfranc apart from his Norman allies is that it seems like he was the very thing we're all missing in today's world, an objective observer. He would call anyone out for what he perceived as injustice. Anyone. English, Norman, didn't matter to him. He wasn't a team guy. Morris recalls the following, quote, Lanfranc's correspondence with the Bishop of Rochester, meanwhile, shows the Normans in a poor light when it refers to the problem of English women who had fled to the nunneries, quote, not for love of the religious life, but for fear of the French, end quote of Lanfranc's. Continue quote of Morris. But on the flip side, Lanfranc didn't exactly see the English as pure victims either. He readily pointed out how the English would kill a Norman just for the sake of taking one out. Then again, He's also on record as declaring the policy of murderum as equally unjust as it holds innocent people accountable for despicable men. End quote. I kind of like what I'm hearing here. And here's where I'd like to tie it all together. In the 1060s and 1070s, Morris explains Normandy was slowly becoming more civilized. William survived his tumultuous childhood, and since his declaration as sole Duke of the Duchy, things more or less culturally began to correct itself. And the emerging French culture of chivalry began seeping in. Morris writes, quote, During the 11th century, it had become usual practice in northern France for noblemen to spare the lives of their enemies once they had them at their mercy. Society had become, in a word, chivalrous, end quote. In fact, as proof of this cultural shift among the nobility, it wasn't since William's earliest years that political assassinations even occurred in Normandy. Though William was known for his brutality toward his immediate enemies, such as those who taunted him about his mother in the county of Maine years earlier, once he gained control of the situation, he was far more inclined to release these people, imprison them even, or just kick them out. It might be shocking to hear after all we've learned so far, but he took the same attitude to England. No, really, he did. <laughs> I know it's hard to hear. Morris even states pretty clearly, quote, no Englishman is known to have been executed after his surrender, end quote. Now, there is but one exception to that, but we'll get there soon enough. But this doesn't negate that statement. And it holds true. It's hard to wrap your head around because the Norman conquest of England, in just its first four years, was a terribly bloody and horrific time period in English history. Yet, Morris says that historians find it easy to say that William could be considered the first chivalrous 
king in English history. I know, right? William of Poitiers. Ugh, if you remember this guy, uh, William's favorite groupie. Well, William of Poitiers once wrote, quote, And you too, you English, would love him and hold him in the highest respect. If putting aside your folly and wickedness, you could judge more soundly the kind of man into whose power you had come. Canute the Dane slaughtered the noblest of your sons, young and old, with the utmost cruelty, so that he could subject you to his rule and that of his children. End quote. Really? William of Poitiers really just cast William in a far brighter light than Canute? The English didn't buy it. In fact, both were initially seen as usurpers and tyrants, that is, William and Canute. The major difference that the English couldn't stomach, at least in reference to comparison, is that the English nobility was firmly kept in place on the whole under Canute. William damn near eradicated the entire English nobility in a matter of four years. And though Canute put Danes in charge of things, the likes of Godwin and Leofrich and Seward either remained in high status or earned high status. William tried, of course, by keeping folks like Archbishop Stigand, Earl Morcar, Earl Edwin, and even Earl Wolthioff in place. But these were really band-aid moves to try to hold together a kingdom that was already in full revolt. If you notice, Canute kept English noblemen in place indefinitely, while William used them as long as he needed them before casting them aside and replacing them with his own loyalists. So, the comparison of Canute and William as a means of justifying William's reign, to me, is a foolish one. The only thing these two have in common, at least from an English perspective, again, is that they were both foreign usurpers who stole the crown. Justified or not, Canute can be said to have been behind Edmund Ironside's death, and William straight up was responsible for killing Harold, Harold Godwinson. Either way, the English saw these two men as the men who murdered their kings. Yet, despite the poor comparison, by definition, though William certainly deposed English nobility in droves, still, once they submitted, he did the chivalrous thing and did not kill them. You decide then. Could William be considered the first chivalrous king? But I would like to mention the stark difference in the Anglo-Saxon way of dealing with conflict and the Norman-French way of dealing with conflict. Now, violence abound no matter where you were, but to be more specific, Anglo-Saxons fully embraced things like the blood feud, though admittedly, the further north you traveled, the stronger that idea became. While the Normans may have stripped you of wealth, land, and title, if you surrendered, well, you kept your eyes, nose, ears, hands, and life. Just something to chew on as we continue our story of England's rich history. Now, as we wrap up the episode here, looking at it as a whole, I see that my warning to you at the top held true, didn't it? We definitely seem to have jumped around a bit. We discussed Merdram, the very important transition from Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury to Archbishop Lanfranc of Canterbury and the practice of the very French culture of chivalry first arriving on English shores. Now, in closing, there's one more thing 
I'd like to point out because there will be a bit of a jump in time between last episode and the next episode. Essentially, it'll be a jump of about five years or so. This period, between the disappearance of Harroward and William's taking of Ely in August of 1070, and what history calls the Revolt of the Earls in 1075, seems like we're jumping over a massive amount of action and change during the conquest. And to an extent, yes, we are. However, the change that occurred hits on such small levels that when taking a bird's eye view of that time period, we see that it's all really just one giant shift. Tiny practices and ideas over a wide swathe of people is one way to define culture, isn't it? So I'd like to leave us on a simple discussion of the seismic cultural shift within the Kingdom of England between 1070 and 1075. Now keep in mind, culture doesn't shift as if, you know, a light switch is flipped on and then off. One could say that England had been in a tremendous cultural flux since, say, the year 991 with the Battle of Malden and the reemergence of Danish and Norse interests on the island. There's a reason why I chose that particular event to focus on in the first couple episodes of the entire podcast. From the centuries-old Dane law to Danish kings, from the exile of Edward to the introduction of droves of Norman clergy and advisors who followed him to don the crown of England, and from Duke William's invasion to the near-constant rebellion seeking Welsh, Flemish, Irish, and Scottish assistance, England, like I've said many times, was in flux during the 11th century. Everyone in Northern Europe seemed to have, to have had a hand in shifting Anglo-Saxon culture to a more worldly culture. The one constant through it all, keep in mind, were the English themselves, my ancestors, many of your ancestors. Our ancestors most likely were not a part of the nobility. I mean, mathematically speaking, we can't really deny that. And to me, it's kind of magical in a way. It was our ancestors who survived this time period. We wouldn't be here if it, if it wasn't. And our ancestors during the years of 1070 to 1075 were more or less able to settle, settle in ever so slightly and begin to embrace the inevitable. The kingdom was just different now. They'd done their best to keep it the same, but alas, some waves are just too big to stand against. William was that wave, and the, Normans, and the Norman surge into the kingdom was just not going to abate. From the English perspective, there was simply far too much flow than ebb. But it does seem as if the layman and woman realized this sooner than their nobility did. Sure, many still fought for their nobility. I mean, someone had to show up and take the field, right? But when it came to day-to-day -day life, the lower classes seemed to have just moved on by the early 1070s. Case in point, Orderic Vitalis writes of this time with the following words, quote, English and Normans were living peacefully together in boroughs, towns, and cities, and were intermarrying with each other. You could see many villages or town markets filled with displays of French wares and merchandise and observe the English, who had previously seemed contemptible to the French in their native dress, 
completely transformed by foreign fashions, end quote. Now, Morris admits that much of this is anecdotal at best. In fact, it's worth remembering that the English-born Orderic Vitalis wouldn't even be born until 1075. But he does reference a story from Simeon of Durham, also writing later, who wrote, quote, Bishop Walker and Earl Waltheoff were very friendly and accommodating to each other, so that he, sitting together with the bishop in the synod of priests, humbly and obediently carried out whatever the bishop decreed for the reformation of Christianity in his earldom, end quote. So in the end, who knows how much is true and how much is propaganda and how much is a straight-up lie? But the fact remains that during the early to mid-1070s, there was simply a shift culturally within the kingdom. This could be a certainty. The details are what's suspect. We start to see reports, however, of ports returning to their former prosperity, no longer hindered or straight shut down from war. Cities like Exeter, Hereford, London, Dover seem to have cooled and quieted to the point where, as our Derek pointed out, marketplaces showed signs of resuming the status quo. In addition to these five years being a time of relative easing of tensions, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles reported that, get this, Edgar Etheling sued for peace with King William sometime around 1073 to 1074. The Chronicle states, quote, The king granted his request and sent for him. King Malcolm and his sister, again, gave countless treasures to him and to all his men, and sent him once more from their domain and great state. The sheriff of York came to meet him at Durham and accompanied him the whole way, and arranged for food and fodder to be obtained for him in every castle they came to, until they came across the sea to the king. End quote. There's absolutely no way this would have ever happened under any other king, further supporting the idea of William being quite the chivalrous Frenchman. According to Morris, the Chronicles continued saying that Edgar was received, quote, with great ceremony, and then remained at the king's court there and accepted such privileges as he granted them, end quote. So that's it, I guess. Uh, Edgar Etheling, at last, gave up the fight, and the rest of the English seemed to have given up as well. And hey, fair enough, you know. No one can say that the English didn't give it what they had, that's for sure. Now, sure, they could have coordinated better, and sure, they could have pulled their resources. Sure, they could have worked with their neighbors more efficiently, convincing them of the threat that was William of Normandy. But a thousand years ago, with no central leadership, remember their king just died on the battlefield, what more could we have expected from the English? There's still one more major event, as I've said, at least militarily, that William must face down. That will be the subject of our next episode, however. But what is so interesting about this next one is that, while it's entirely different from what he faced conquering the English, it's more of the same of what he dealt with in pre-conquest Normandy. Up next, the earls take issue with William's rule. And I can't... Oh, wait, no. 
No, 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 no. William's used to his, his Earl's rebelling. He's already used to that. Let me take a second crack at this one. Up next, the Norman Earls take issue with William's rule. And I can't wait to tell you about it.